Good morning, everybody. Um, the subject I'm going to talk about, which uh, really would have helped if we had the overhead, but we don't, so is uh, a difficult one. It was difficult for me to decide to talk about it. It's not that it's like, wow, you know, um, but it's one that I'm not a great expert on. Um, if I'm an expert at a whole lot, but anyway. And I gave it the title, The Challenge of Discipline. And uh, this is not about child discipline. Uh, this is about uh, one of the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, um, 22 and 23, we have the uh, list of the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, not the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Another word for self-control is self-discipline. And Jesus talked about self-denial. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That doesn't mean that the flesh or our bodies are evil, um, and not at all. It doesn't mean that at all. This has to do with more than just your physical. This is sort of like the, the person that we are embodied uh, that has these struggles. <clears throat> Dr. Elton Trueblood said this, the greatest problems are moral and spiritual. And unless we can make some progress in these realms, we may not even survive. And that's a quote from the foreword to Richard Foster's classic book on Christian spirituality, this book, called The Celebration of Discipline, The Path to Spiritual Growth. And it's a book that my attention has been drawn back to recently. Over the past couple of months, I've been reading it carefully. A long time since I read it before. It's one of those books you read and say, well, that's really cool and park somewhere because it's a real challenge. Uh, but the Lord brought my attention back to this because uh, another thing that came back to me was some years ago, um, I felt the Lord say to me very strongly, you should be a man of discipline. And um, I kind of waffled on it. You know, it's kind of like, wow, what does that mean? That means like, whoa, I'm going to have to really take my time and deal with some stuff. It's kind of those, uh, one of those things where you say, yeah, okay, maybe I'll have more time to do that later. Uh, but... The other thing is that what, as we saw in that last song that we were singing in worship, it's in the middle. Like, when is later, right? Later is always tomorrow. And sometime or other, when we get told something, it becomes today. So, <clears throat> discipline. We all long to be faithful dis disciples of Jesus. And the word disciple and the word discipline are from the same root. If I want to be a consistent, faithful disciple, then I can't do it without 
discipline, without some discipline. This is not about salvation. This is not about guilt trip. Please don't take it that way. Um, I mean, if it was about a guilt trip, I've got enough of that for myself, you know. Um, But it's about Jesus saying, if anyone wants to follow me, he or she must deny him or herself and take up the cross daily. Daily. We all get our crosses, right? Some of them have some pretty heavy ones. And Jesus is talking about a deliberate decision to respond, to take up a cross, his cross, daily. And he also said, no disciple is above the master. It's enough for the disciple to become like the master. And we're all called to become like Jesus. Now, again, sometimes we get this picture that, you know, well, that means everything is a killjoy. There's no joy in this. But, in fact, at least from my understanding, my limited understanding, there is joy. There's great joy in responding to this call. God intends, I'm quoting from Foster again in the book, God intends the disciplines of the spiritual life to be for ordinary human beings who have jobs, who care for children, and who wash dishes. The disciplines are best exercised in the midst of our relationships with our husband or wife, our brothers and sisters, our friends and neighbors. The primary requirement is a longing after God. So if you have a longing in your heart to get closer to God, to walk with God every day, then you're qualified. You don't have to do anything special. You're qualified. While the Bible talks about prayer and fasting and worship, which are included in the disciplines, it doesn't give us any how-to details, and this is a challenge. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I've sometimes asked, like, God, you say pray, but, like, I don't see a whole lot of instruction there about, like, how do I go about that? Or fasting, which isn't, like, a very popular thing to do these days, and you see the... And so the question is, why, why isn't there some kind of detailed instruction in this? There, there are hints, but, like, there's not a how-to manual or something. And the response that... Um, Foster gives in the book is because in the time of the apostles and disciples in the early Christian church, the disciplines were so frequently practiced, and they were such a part of the general culture that everybody knew how to do it. It was just, they did it. The, uh, the disciples, the apostles learned it directly from Jesus, and the apostles, the disciples, the early ones just modeled it for people, and they just did it. Problem is, we've kind of lost, lost contact with it somewhere. Okay. I keep, I keep having to flip my pages here, so. It's easy to accept that, you know, discipline has to be a part of your life. In some contexts, like, where are you going to go if you don't have it? If you want to succeed academically, so that you qualify to get into some kind of good career path. 
you just got to have discipline to get down, get your nose to the grindstone and do it. And, and, you, and, you know, lots of people just decide to do it. And that's a context. There's a great motivation we can understand. Yeah, I need to be disciplined about studying and learning and mastering that stuff. Athletes have great self-discipline in the areas that they want to become professionals or great successes in. So they undergo strenuous physical training to do it for hours and hours, etc. Um, if you have a job, and a lot of you have jobs or have, have had jobs or are hoping to have jobs, it takes discipline to go to a job every day and you know, carry out the responsibilities of the job. You've got to have self-discipline to do it. To, even just to be a regular good citizen takes some self-discipline, like not cutting people off on the road, you know, when you're driving, and uh, that, not saying those nasty things you're thinking about and all that kind of stuff. That's some self-discipline too, right? There's a little bit of that involved in just being a regular good citizen. Voting in elections is a bit of a self-discipline too. You have to kind of talk yourself into it because you say, wow, who is there to vote for? Maybe you're also decided and you got no problem like that, but uh, I know that in Carlton Place and in Almont, the elections are really contentious this year. Um, health concerns will drive you to self-discipline, for sure. Get control of your, your diet and your daily regimen so that you can stay healthy or return to health if you're struggling with it. To be a musician takes hours and hours and hours of dedicated discipline. So, why is it so hard to think then, or why is it so different to think that if we want to kind of grow in our relationship with the Lord, we might need to be a little more intentional about it. Just kind of actually finding ways to, if you want to put it that way, have some kind of discipline in it. Think of it as this. It's kind of like you're doing all this, uh, you know, all these reps in the gym and all that kind of stuff, or you're you're doing paces on the on the track, or you're skating, you know, uh, on the rink, you're doing these drills and all that. Well, in the spiritual realm, let's just think of it as spiritual exercise, like skill development. Discipleship is uh, is a challenge. It doesn't come cheap. It's not an automatic thing just because I said the sinner's prayer or I committed my life, if we want to use another kind of vocabulary, I committed my life to Christ and fill in the blank if you can remember that, you know, on such and such a date in such and such a place. That's a really good... So this is not about salvation. It's not about that. It doesn't mean, you know, you're not going to go to heaven because you didn't have a, you know, a discipline of this, that, or the other thing. And it's not about being religious, about performing rituals or saying the right prayers or, or having the right formula for whatever practice. It's about love. It's about loving God and loving others. Because if I be become a better disciple, I will also be a better brother or sister a better husband or wife, a better friend to the other people that are around me where, 
my love of God comes into practice directly. Like I say, please don't take this as a guilt trip. I'm not any better at it than probably you guys are. Since the earliest times of the church, the stuff we're talking about has been recognized and practiced, but they never put together a nice handy-dandy course called Discipleship 101, right? They just kind of did it. The training and all of that kind of stuff is kind of done on the job, on-site, hands-on, mentoring, we would call that today, okay? At one point, near around, around the year 100 or early after the year 100, there was actually a document created called the Didache, which was used by some Christian groups to kind of prepare people for baptism, which was kind of like the, the sign of entering into the, the church community. We find hints of it in the book of Acts, where the disciples devoted themselves to regular prayer. You can find this in Acts chapter 4, 5, 6. Regular prayer, fellowship, the breaking of bread or taking communion with, uh, uh, in the context of the meal, and the teaching of the apostles. And when we go on and look at what Paul did in the churches that he founded, it's the same pattern. The community aspects of faith our faith in Jesus are really important because they encourage us to be in this kind of a setting with one another. To be with fellow believers is very encouraging, strengthening, because we see, well, I'm not alone. My family's not alone. Uh, it helps us to remain accountable and on track. So doing the stuff in the community is great, but it can't substitute for my personal need to pursue growth in my walk with Jesus, to pursue fellowship with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit, specifically and intentionally. And most of that, as great as it is to be here to participate in the worship, but most of that other stuff is pretty much between me and God. So, uh, foster sets out the disciplines in, a, in an organized fashion in this way. This would work a lot better if I had a slide up there to show you that. But um, he talks about three kinds of disciplines. Inward disciplines, outward disciplines, and corporate disciplines. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time talking, let's, most of the time that's left here, talking about a couple of the inward disciplines, but I'm going to just kind of uh, skim over the other things just to give you a context here. Inward disciplines are, as the name implies, developed very personally and privately. It's kind of like if you think about it in the context of Jesus' life. Jesus went off by himself frequently, probably every day. It doesn't say that, but it says in different places, as was his custom. In other words, it was his discipline. Jesus was very self-disciplined. And you think, well, that was easy for him. He was the son of God, and it kind of came automatically to him, and all that kind of stuff. No. He had to choose to do it. He was, sometimes we, we kind of forget about his humanity because of his, Godhead, his godhood. He was both at the same time, but he was fully human. He says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way the same as we are, in 
every way, every way, guys. He was a guy, okay? He had temptations. He had to overcome those by self-discipline. You can say, well, he never sinned, so he didn't, and he didn't have a fallen nature like we do. True. But he was a man, and he lived as a man. He accepted the limitations of being a man. He was tempted as a man. You don't think that he was ever tempted to say nasty things to somebody? He had to control his tongue to choose to do that. These kinds of disciplines have to take root in our hearts and our minds and our souls. And when they do that, then they start to come out like fruit. We're talking about fruit of the Spirit here. They start to come out of us just like fruit growing on a tree. But it's not like an, it's not an automatic thing when you come to the Lord or when you get baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, there's all this joy and everything, and it's good for a bit, right? I don't know, maybe a longer bit for you than for me. Uh, but at some point, it kind of fades down into the background somewhere, and then we've got to start working, Right? But even if these are done, these kinds of things are done mostly privately, they become very public in their fruit. They come out and touch everybody that I'm connected with, in my family, in my friends, in my church, at work, at school, wherever. Because if they become part of me, then they become part of the way I am with everybody. So... Um, Foster lists four inward disciplines, and they are meditation, prayer, fasting, and study. We don't have time to talk about all of them. We will talk about a couple of them. Uh, very quickly, just to say what the outward disciplines are, uh, the outward ones are obviously conducted in a more outward fashion. They are more public. They're interrelational. The other ones, the inward ones, are first done with myself and God. These are done in a more public domain. But, and they, these might be a bit of a surprise to you. Simplicity, solitude, submission, and service, four S's. Now, solitude doesn't sound like a very outward discipline, right? And the reason that he lists it there, even though solitude is, seems like a, a, a very personal one, is that like Jesus went apart when he had spent all day in ministry and kind of like poured everything out of himself. He needed to go apart to regain his focus, to recharge, just like most of us. If you get heavily involved, intensely involved in giving and giving and giving, I don't care how extroverted you are and energized by just being around people. At some point, you're just going to run out of steam. You're just going to find yourself, wow, I am done. And Jesus was like that. He had to go apart to recharge his batteries. That's where solitude comes in. This is not like solitude because I'm a lone wolf and I just want to, you know, go off and sulk somewhere. This is solitude intentionally sought. But it doesn't mean you have to go into a desert somewhere. I mean, you can have solitude in the middle of a crowd. It's actually not too hard, especially if you don't know anybody. Um... But that's, that's not the same as being lonely. That is not it at all. Anyway, I don't want to spend too much time there. And the other list, 
The other short list is from the corporate disciplines, and again, we have no time to talk about these, but they are confession, worship. We did that today here. That's actually a kind of a discipline. Confession, um, yeah, we don't have time about that, but sometimes there's a room for public confession. I'm not talking about, you know, hey, open mic, come confess all your sins. That's not it. This is where you go to a brother or a sister and you say, you know, I'm struggling with this, right? Guidance, obvious, and celebration, which we can also say we've done some of today. All of these are very public kinds of things, corporate. So, with the bit of time that we've got left, I'm going to focus on the first two inward disciplines for about the next 10 minutes. And those two, if you remember the list, you'd have to be pretty good probably to remember the list, uh, are meditation and prayer. I'll kind of reverse the order to start with. Prayer. Prayer is common to most of the world's population, regardless of their religion. I mean, you can name any religion you like, and if it's with, and, and um, yeah, about, at least nominally speaking, about 80% of the world's population officially follows some religion. And every single one of those religions that they follow believe in prayer. In fact, even people who say they have no religion will surprise you sometimes and admit that they pray. Did you know that the, this is a little sidebar here, the, the fastest growing religious segment in the Canadian population is the group that says they have no religion. You say, well, how is that a religious designation? Well, to be semantic about it, even if you say you have no religion, you have a religion. It's the religion of having no religion. And you say, that makes no sense. All religion is, is an organized kind of way of trying to understand reality. And you say, well, that's not, anyway, we won't go there. Even agnostics will admit to saying an odd prayer here and there in a crisis situation. They, it would go something like this, and maybe you've met somebody that's actually done this. Oh, God, if there's a God, or if you're there, please, whatever, fill in the blank. You know, get me through this. Help me. Save me. World War II, the old saying was, there are no atheists in foxholes. And you can find the worst atheists on, uh, in, their, in their lives singing in a foxhole, facing death, and calling out to God to help or to save them. I met one once. He, he wasn't an atheist but anymore, but um, because God had saved his life. Anyway. The discipline of prayer is not the same thing as saying grace at mealtimes, if you have a habit of doing that at home. Like, that's great, but that's not the discipline of prayer. It's not kneeling at your bed for a minute before you go to sleep or with your child, even though that's, these are great things to do. Please do them. But that's not it. Or even praying with your home group in a prayer meeting. That's not the discipline of prayer. It's a that's a corporate thing that we were talking about earlier, okay? Back to prayer in a, in a, in a minute. 
just to define what me uh, meditation also is very widely practiced around the world. Jews, Hindus, Buddhists, and Muslims all have forms of meditation. Christian meditation is not identical to the, the, those forms, although there are shared characteristics. What are the characteristics of the disciplines of meditation and prayer? And I'm going to kind of lump them together, although there are some differences. Meditation and prayer are personal and private, me alone with God. They both have that in common, meditation and prayer. Jesus did both, as we've said. Jesus did both frequently and intensely. If you think of his most intense time of prayer, right? He sweat blood. That's pretty intense prayer. Right? And he wasn't alone in terms of like, but his disciples fell asleep on him, right? This is where like his disciples totally let him down. He just so badly needed the support. But Jesus, it says in Luke especially, Luke pays special attention to this, although the other gospels mention it. He spent whole nights in communion with the Father and in interceding, intercessory prayer, and I'm sure part of that time was meditation as well. And although prayer and meditation are kind of joined at the hip, they're almost like Siamese twins, right? It's very hard to separate them at times. Um, meditation can include these things, and this, this is not a limited list here, but here are some things that you might consider meditation, depending on how it's being done. Listening to God's Word. Now, what does that mean? Putting on a recording and listening to it? Well, maybe. That could be good. But it could be just repeating something. This is not mantra. Please don't take it that way. Okay? Taking a phrase or a verse from Scripture, which has got your attention here, and just saying it, even if it's just in your mind, over to yourself, and searching it, and turning to God to say, what's in this? What are you saying to me? You might have a little help there if you've got some music on to help you keep focused or something. Second thing that could be meditation, reflecting on God's work, such as the wonders of creation. Of course, if you're out somewhere and you've got it around you, that makes it all the easier, right? But just being there, just being present there and appreciating what God has done and what he's showing you there. You don't have to go anywhere with this. Like, there's no answer here, right? It's like the thing is the trip, not the destination. The destination will come, believe me. But you've got to start on the trip first. And sometimes the destination will just take you totally by surprise. Something you never would have imagined coming out of it. Another thing, resting quietly in his presence. These can be combined like, there's no sort of a, this excludes that here, not at all. Resting quietly in his presence, sometimes just resting really quietly with nothing. Not reading the scripture. I mean, you could. But that's, there's a, yeah, okay. Reading the scripture is good, but not just reading a pile of it. This is, that's not meditation. Some people put a candle on it, just helps them focus, right? The point of focus here. 
It's not to hypnotize yourself. Contemplating God's deeds, whether those are the deeds that he's done in the history or in your own personal life. In the Old Testament, there's a passage where it says they set up an Ebenezer or a column of stone to commemorate something. You have those in your life. You have places where God has dealt directly, and you know it, with something in your life. Or he's dealing with something now. God is there. He was there then. He's there with you now as you go back and you think on those things. God was faithful here. He met me here. He can meet me again. What did he teach me? God's commandments can be a source of meditation too. So those are just examples. They're not the uh, only ones. Why meditate? And you've lived, perhaps, perhaps you've done quite a bit of this. Perhaps it, it'd be new to you to try it. In the Imitation of Christ, the most read devotional book in the history of Christianity after the Bible. Anybody read The Imitation of Christ? Okay. I'm glad to see a, a, a few of you. Have, uh, it's a wonderful book. And you take it in small portions. They're perfect for meditation time. Okay? The author is a man named Thomas Akempis. Um, the book was written in the 1400s. You say, wow. Yeah. But it is absolutely, almost all of it, totally relevant today. He says this about meditation. Meditation brings us into a familiar friendship with Jesus. Jesus moves out of theology and doctrine into a present and shining reality in my heart and life. And this is uh, a little addition that I've kind of made that. I begin to even think and feel like him. A caution about this, when you meet Jesus here, this is not the simpering, gentle Jesus, meek and mild portrait that so much as, you know, that's just a betrayal of who this guy, who this amazing person Jesus really was. It's more like C.S. Lewis's Aslan and Narnia. He is a wild lion. He is untamed. And the way he shows himself to you may just blow you right out. Okay? The Jesus that you meet is astonishing astonishingly loving and affectionate, but he can also be severe and even reprimanding. And that's the danger. It's not a danger. Because if it is, it's done in a very loving way. Okay? Christian meditation is, this is just a caution, okay? How is Christian meditation different from stuff that is so popular in yoga? Okay, I'm not I'm not dissing some things in yoga necessarily here, but Christian meditation is not yoga. It's not an Eastern practice, which typically, if you go, some of you have maybe kind of done yoga-like things. That's okay. I'm not saying, you know, stop sitting in the lotus position or, you know, breathing deeply. Those are good things to do. They can calm you and center you. But the difference for Christian meditation is not about emptying your mind. 
which so much of those kinds of Eastern practices say. It's not about letting out your true self so that you suddenly ascend into some kind of unity with the ultimate reality. That is not Christian meditation. You're going to meet if you, if you, well, you will at some point in Christian meditation meet the living God. The living God. Not the impersonal ultimate reality or the, excuse the use of this Hindu word, but om, you know. Um, you're not going to do that. That's not where you're going to get. If you do, then you better backtrack, okay? Christian meditation will take you to a place that's far richer and far deeper because you will discover the Jesus that loves you, okay? And that's given everything for you. Anything that you do in these areas, you must weigh against Scripture. That's the rule, right? If it takes you away from that, uh, you know, don't go there. Prayer. Prayer, I'm quoting from Foster again, is the discipline that brings us into the deepest and highest work of the human spirit. Real prayer is life-creating and life-changing. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. Meditation is more passive, in a way, and prayer is a much more active thing. This is where you're engaging. You are seeking. You are in a conversation in prayer. Yes, a conversation, because God can and sometimes will answer you very directly, very particularly, okay? And sometimes very immediately. Other times, maybe you'll be waiting for a while. And you're having this conversation with a real living personal being who is present. Whether you're actually feeling the presence or not, he is. He is present. He has promised to be present. James declares, the book of James, declares that an essential element of prayer is faith or trust. Faith that God can and will hear and answer. You can read that in uh, James in his conversation or his discussion of prayer. Jesus says that when we pray, we must ask in faith. Come in faith. And all you need is a tiny tiny faith, right? Remember that? Faith like the, uh, the mustard seed, the smallest of all the garden plants. So think of a sesame seed or something like that. They're really small, right? If you've got that much faith, you're guaranteed to connect with God, okay? And sometimes you don't even think you have faith and you're still going to connect. Things will change in response to prayer, they may not be exactly the way you thought, but they will change. And where's the primary place to expect to see change? Well, we're talking about inward disciplines here, right? So the primary place is inward. I might be praying really hard, you know, and intensely for something to change outward. Maybe that will happen. 
But one thing that's guaranteed is that something will change inward. Something will change inward. The primary change is going to be in my own heart. You got a problem with somebody, like a really difficult problem with somebody, what's one of the best ways to create a change in that situation? Go and argue with them. Tell them what you think of them, etc., etc. Is that going to change a whole lot? Nah. What does Jesus say to do? Pray for your, well, he says enemies. Well, maybe this is not an enemy, but pray for the person you're having the struggle with, right? You want something to change there? Well, the first thing that's probably going to happen is that as you pray for them, God will change your heart towards them. And Paul says that out of prayer comes the peace that surpasses understanding. That's a reward enough, I think. God doesn't need our prayer to know what we need or want, but we need to pray to learn to know God and to trust Him. Prayer draws our hearts to God and turns our faces to Him, and it opens us up to receive from Him what we really need, not what we want or what we think we need. And there may be coincidence there. Sometimes it'll show us what our real motives are, too. Is there a formula for prayer? We're almost done here. Sorry. Um, no, there's no formula for prayer. Who is called to pray? Everyone, without exception. Even the smallest child can pray, and it's delightful. Even the sick and people who are lying in their beds dying can still pray. What do we pray for? Anything or everything. But sometimes it helps to have a kind of an agenda, like, uh, you know, keep a list or a diary or something, and maybe even note if something gets answered. Where to pray? Anywhere. You don't have to be anywhere special to pray. But sometimes in a discipline, it's good to have a regular place set aside where you go and do this at a regular time. Maybe for you that would be when you get up in the morning. Maybe it's later in the day when you got that time or in the evening. But it is good to have a specific time and place if you can manage that. It doesn't have to be complicated. For me, I find it's often best in the morning when, before it gets busy. And how should I pray? Again, no, no formula or procedure, but it sometimes helps to have a pattern just so that you kind of get used to it. Two of these, and there are others, but I'm only going to mention two. One model is the Lord's Prayer model. The Lord's Prayer, we say it as a kind of a rote repetition a lot of the time, but if you were to break it down into the types of things that are in it, it gives you a pattern. Jesus starts with recognition and adoration of God in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, recognizing who God is. Hallowed be your name. In other words, calling, you know, recognizing that God is worthy of our worship, etc. So a process like that. Second, to pray for God's will to be done in whatever context you can think of. You can make that very personal. You can make it, you know, National, we are also commanded to pray for governments and stuff like that. God's will to be done on earth. 
Then he brings us to our own concerns. Daily stuff. God is, God is concerned. Food, shelter, those kinds of things. Confession and pardon. I remember he's, after he said the Lord's Prayer, taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer, he says, so unless you forgive those that have sinned against you, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. That's pretty heavy. And then protection and deliverance. Okay, Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil, right? Don't allow us to be tempted. I don't think that in, there's anything beyond our strength, this way, the way Paul puts it, right? You're going to get temptations. Second pattern is just ACTS, Acts. Some of you probably know this one as well. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, kind of like A-C-T-S. And you go through a similar process there. Do you need any kind of special way of praying? No, just be yourself. God knows who you are. You can't fool him. You don't need holy language to pray like some people in the old days used to say. They, they used to go into these and thous and all that, kind of like the, the, you know, talking to God for heaven's sake. Right? All right, conclusion. So discipline in our Christian life is a choice. Now, here's the, here's the oxymoron. It's a choice, but it's not an option. Hmm? Why is it a choice? Because I need to choose to exercise this self-discipline for myself. But discipline is not an option because it's 100% certain that God will discipline me. Okay? So I can kind of get a head start on some of that. Maybe I can avoid some of the other discipline if I get to some self-discipline. Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 12. Endure hardship as discipline. God is training you as children. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true, true children. So you're going through stuff. Now, this doesn't mean you've been a bad person. Not at all. It's got nothing to do with that. There's a whole lot of questions here which I probably can't answer, right? Why is God allowing this to happen, you know? God disciplines us. Here's what, what the writers of Hebrews says in faith about this kind of stuff, okay? You notice that he doesn't give you these absolute answers that we all would really like to know. He just says this, God disciplines us for our good. Whatever it is, it's for our good, right? And it could be something that's terribly hard, but what he says, it's for our good that we may share in his holiness. And holiness is about being set apart for God. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So, in terms of Exercising some of these disciplines we're talking about, particularly, let's say, prayer and meditation, which we've talked about in a little more detail. I'll be better prepared for the other kind of discipline that's going to come my way at some point, the kind that God lets come into my life. A lot of those kinds of disciplines are the result of my own mistakes, right? 
And out of those, then you come to this point where God is actually saying to me, you need to learn this, right? You need to actually live this. So if any of these connect with you, I would say that the fundamental and most important one to engage in, if you're going to choose just one of them, is prayer. Prayer. It'll make you more intimate with God, guaranteed. And you'll find him drawing, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, right? He will draw near to you. It's a promise. It's not a, oh, maybe. And then he'll begin you, to guide you into whatever else is coming down the pike. So that's all I'm going to say. It, it's probably a lot. Um, but let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your great love for us, which brings us into places where it can be difficult. There's great joy. And even in the morning, it says, the morning as in M-O-U-R, even in the tough places, it says there is great joy in the morning. M-O-R. And Lord, as you bring us through these things, teach us to uh, take steps to draw closer to you through prayer or whatever else that you lead us to. Help us to grow this way so that we'll grow more easily when the other things happen. So we commit all this to you in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Savior and Lord. Amen.